0: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. And the day is Friday, July 24th, 2020. Oh, so much to talk about today. I've been fired up all day, psyching myself up for this recording that you are listening to right now. We'll talk about to what extent television viewership matters for wrestling these days. But perhaps more interestingly, in these days without economic justice, I have found a way to give you hope. I have a scenario that might cure some of WWE's ills. It is not a likely scenario but it is a plausible one. Why Comcast should buy World Wrestling Entertainment. That to come later. But also today, we've got some audio from a Stephanie McMahon interview with Ad Age. With the pandemic still very much underway. First, it's time for a weekly COVID-19 update. Confirmed COVID-19 cases over the last seven days in the United States were 204 per million. That's some 20 times higher than other countries per capita, like the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia. COVID deaths in the United States are about 2 per million over the last seven days. That's twice as high as the United Kingdom, more than eight times as high as Canada. Deaths per million in Japan remain close to zero. Meanwhile, in Florida, the case rate is more than two times higher than it is in the United States in general. The death rate just less than two times as high as the United States in general. Florida counties of Duval and Orange, however, have finally started to slip below the rate, below the case rate of Florida in general. However, their case rates per capita the county still remains about twice as high as that of the United States overall. But what about testing?
1: Don't forget, we have more cases than anybody in the world. But why? Because we do more testing. When you test, you have a case. When you test, you find something is wrong with people. If we didn't do any testing, we would have very few cases.
2: The percentage of positive test results in Florida have declined slightly over the last 2 weeks. The same is true for Florida counties Duval in Orange County, by the way, we concentrate on those two counties because Duval County is where Jacksonville is, where AEW tapes. And Orange County is where WWE tapes in Orlando. But positive test percentages are down in those two counties and in the state overall, but still over 10%, which is Florida's self-defined target range that it's attempting to stay under. But what about in countries? The United States still has a higher percentage of positive test results than Japan Canada, the United Kingdom, and Australia. The United States remains outpaced by a great deal, actually, by Mexico, where an astounding more than half of tests in Mexico result in a positive case. Compare that to about 8% for the United States over the last seven days. Deaths per capita, too, in Mexico are about double of that in the United States. In international TV news, AEW made a distribution agreement with Sky in Italy, the former home of WWE content. WWE, a month ago, announced that it had made a new deal in the Italy market with Discovery, with Raw and SmackDown available on Discovery's Dplay Plus airing live, along with NXT available on demand on Thursday mornings. I read a report in The Observer that Sky had dropped WWE, In 2015, WWE announced that it had made a new deal with Sky that was a five-year deal, which lines up with the timing of the announcement of the new deal for WWE in the Italian market with Discovery. So it seems likely that the contract was not terminated or ended early, but rather that WWE and Sky probably attempted to renegotiate a deal, and apparently Sky wasn't willing to make a deal at a rate that WWE wanted with the viewership that WWE was delivering. Sounds similar to something that happened in the UK market for WWE as well, where WWE did not renew its deal with Sky in the UK and moved to BT Sport, where that too was followed by AEW making a deal with Sky in that market. We'll go to audio of an interview with Stephanie McMahon, WWE's chief brand officer, after this.
1: In an era where promises are often broken. Hey, kid.
3: Macho man? Let's hit a
1: few. One federation and its superstars still believe in making dreams come true. The World Wrestling Federation. Our season never ends.
2: Do you guys ever go on strike? No,
1: we never.
2: So this was a good interview for Ad Age with the interviewer Janine Pogge with WWE's chief brand officer, Stephanie McMahon. I think this was a a good interview with good questions asked. I think the interviewer did her research here. And first Stephanie was asked why, when all other forms of sports and entertainment for the most part had stopped doing events, why did WWE choose to continue to go on without fans?
4: Stephanie, um, why did the organization go that route when most of the other sports and entertainment productions were shut down?
5: Well, WWE's mission is to put smiles on people's faces the world over, and we actually considered it a responsibility, um, as long as we could do it safely, to continue to produce our programming. And so, as such, we have not been off the air. Um, WrestleMania, which is akin to our Super Bowl or World Cup, uh, it was supposed to be performed in front of over 80,000.
2: So I'll stop it right there for the moment. So that is the well-practiced W response that W has a responsibility, a social responsibility to create entertainment and to deliver it to their fans and put smiles on people's faces, which is a nice PR message. The real reason why W continued to do events from the Performance Center with no fans, and with no testing until recently, no COVID testing, resulting in some 30-40 performers and staff testing positive for COVID. The reason why they've chosen to continue to do this is because of the enormous television revenue that the company generates from producing Raw and SmackDown. Even if there hadn't been a pandemic this year, WWE still would have made about half of its revenue in the year in the form of television money. If they don't do these shows, if they put something else in its place, it's questionable whether WWE gets all of that TV money. Any explanation otherwise, the notion that they had a social responsibility that they feel that they had to live up to is just transparent. If WWE continues to do Raw and SmackDown, they continue to be very profitable. If they don't, those profits are in question. And in fact, doing the events at the Performance Center, and this part is true for AEW as well, expenses related to creating that core weekly content are much lower. Because it's much more expensive to move from arena to arena around the country in major sports venues. And to shoot live TV in those locations, and to lease those buildings out for the necessary amount of time. There is no reason to do these shows, especially in Florida, for any reason other than money. And maybe ego. Stephanie goes on to say that they truly miss their fans. They are the secret sauce of WWE. She says that WWE is using some different camera angles to accommodate for the lack of fans, and has uh, installed a virtual ceiling to cover over the big-ass fans that they have at the Performance Center. That is, that is the actual brand, the big-ass fans. Google it. She says WB is still working on virtual and augmented reality. I have no idea what she's referring to there. They're experimenting with sweetening the audio in terms of the crowd reactions from the developmental talent who are acting as fans. WB has tracked the actual feedback from fans to get an idea of whether they should adjust the sound sweetening. Later, Pogi asks her what they've learned from this time during the pandemic. What are some things that may carry over into a time when fans are able to engage again in a a more normal pre-pandemic-like way? This got Stephanie talking about advertisers and digital viewing.
5: Happens sooner than later. Uh, So I'll just throw that out there to the universe. Um... But also, I think there's a, a number of different features. You know, I think viewership patterns have have certainly shifted more. You know, to to digital viewing. I don't really think that's going to change all that much. Um, I think that advertising is going to be seen differently. You know, people are becoming accustomed to watching experiences. Some
2: ad. Okay, let's pause there and try to decode that because that's that. That sentence is a bit ambiguous, and I'm not sure what she's referring to. Viewership patterns are changing. Is she referring to the fact that viewership has declined quite a bit for Raw SmackDown since the middle of March? Uh, is she referring to may- maybe also that in- in- where she's saying that digital uh, consumption has increased? Is she talking about the, the fact that is apparently true, uh, which we can see through sources like Social Blade, that uh, WWE has had two of its biggest quarters this year so far on YouTube? Uh, so, so maybe she's saying that she, W is seeing more digital and social engagement than even it was before the pandemic. Meanwhile, it is seeing less television engagement. However, I, I would suggest that I, I don't know that that's true for television consumption overall, that that is a particular phenomenon, I would suggest, for W in particular. Uh, and maybe it's got to do with the quality of the content right now. But let's go on because further on here she makes some comments about advertising
5: um i think that advertising is going to be seen differently you know people are becoming accustomed to watching experiences some ad free experiences some you know different types of advertising so i do think that you know there will be new ways to engage with advertisers to really co-create experiences um, so it's not intrusive to the fan experience, but enhances the fan experience, which I think is ultimately what advertisers want, because they want to be associated in a very positive way. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the the augmented reality and virtual reality is is going to stay. Um, I think there's some really cool techniques that we've all been experimenting with. Certainly, WWE has on the air, and, um, you know, we've learned a lot from that.
2: Okay, so then again there she's talking about augmented and virtual reality. And I don't know if she's referring to something that has happened on TV that I'm just not aware of. If she is and you know what she's talking about, please let me know. But there she's talking about uh, more sort of integrated advertising placements. Uh, what does that mean? Maybe, uh, maybe more, more uh, on-air sponsors in terms of maybe there'll be uh, ads placed on the ring and on the uh, the barriers around the ring. I doubt it, though, because we, we always hear that that's something that Vince McMahon is opposed to, but maybe more product placement-type segments, segments that, you know, skits in the back that feature various uh, products of advertisers seems like a WWE thing to do, which we've seen a little bit of already in the past. Later here, she talks about how fans are interested in you know, uh, getting to know the real people and to get, them, get to know uh, the talent in ways that they usually don't anymore and, and to get to know them in a more authentic way, which seems to be at odds with what some people would describe as their experience of watching WTV where things feel inauthentic. Nonetheless, further in the interview, Poggi asks about safety.
4: About, you know, COVID and some of the changes that have been in place. I did want to ask because I did see some uh, reports about, you know, safety and, you know, some players who maybe, you know, tested positive uh, for COVID. What are the safety measure- measures that WWE has, you know, put in place ensuring that uh, wrestlers and crew uh, are safe while you guys are, are filming?
5: Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, it's all optional. It's volunteer based. So all of our performers and our crew, it's up to them whether or not they want to participate. And we did have a couple of talent, you know, opt out, um, and a couple of crew members opt out for various personal reasons. Um, And of course, we support that.
2: And that as many people know, is true. Roman Reigns decided to opt out. Uh, For a time, Kevin Owens decided to opt out. And Sami Zayn has decided to opt out reportedly.
5: In addition, we do testing um, before all of our programming, and it is the um, you know more advanced testing. It's not the rapid test, which has shown to have a number of you know false positives and false negatives. Though you know all of the testing is improving, but we want to ensure that we have the best testing possible, of course, because the health and safety of our crew and our performers and our employees is paramount. Um, so we do that. We also have.
2: And that part is misleading. Uh, WWE did not administer any COVID tests until the end of June after a developmental talent who had been participating as a crowd member reported to WB that that person had tested positive for COVID, not as a result of a test that WWE had administered to that talent, but as a result of that of a test that that talent had gotten on uh, his or her own. It was only at that point that WB started to administer COVID testing to people that were working at the Performance Center. Meanwhile, AEW which is also running events elsewhere in the state had been administering COVID testing to its talent and workers for months. Stephanie seems to be making an excuse for that by saying that other uh, organizations or situations, not necessarily wrestling, had been administering rapid testing, which is not as accurate as if declining to administer less accurate tests is not as safe as administering no testing at all beyond the temperature checks and questionnaires. Stephanie talks about what has been jokingly called the magic spray, which has been celebrated by Paul Levesque in other interviews. Then Poji asks her whether she thinks that it was the right decision to do these tapings in Florida, considering that Florida has now had such an escalation in confirmed COVID cases
4: months ago it wouldn't have suspected that this would be the level that florida would have gotten to you know sort of not in the place new york was at the time and all of that but now looking back do you still think it was the right right decision to continue matches there given like now where we are
5: i do i mean and orlando is where our performance center is based so we didn't just choose orlando you know right. hoping that it was gonna you know prove to be the best location that was the location Um, And, uh, you know, I do think that that we've done the best we possibly can. Um, You know, we've I think the testing and protocols have actually proven that they work. Um, Yes, we have had some positives, but the majority of our talent performers and crew are very healthy and continuing to, you know, be a part of our show. So we're proud. I mean, we're you know, of course, we want to be smart. We want to be sensitive. We want to take care of, of all of our people. Without them, we don't have a show and we don't have a product. Um, but we also want to make sure that, that we entertain our fans all over the world. And, and we're proud of the fact that we've been able to do
0: that.
2: So Stephanie thinks it was the right decision. She is proud, even though they did have some positive cases. By some, she means upwards of reported 30 to 40 cases of the coronavirus. Next, Stephanie is asked about diversity and inclusion, especially in light of the George Floyd killing and subsequent protests. Stephanie notes that W audiences over-index in African Americans, who make up 21% of the audience. I'm guessing she's referring to the viewing audience. That was actually something I was thinking about earlier this week, uh, looking at some of the survey data uh, and as a result of the Pro Wrestling Favorability Survey that I conducted a few weeks ago. And that 21% number for WB is consistent with a 2013 uh, Scarborough Research, I think it was a survey, which was published through Sports Business Journal. If you do some Googling, you can find it. I think it was a little bit higher even, maybe 24% in that report. Stephanie goes through a list of talent who have done various activities in support of combating racial injustice, including... Kofi Kingston writing the name of Brianna Taylor on his wrist tape and Keith Lee wearing a Black Lives Matter trunks. And she went through all of the training that is done at a corporate level to address things like unconscious bias. She then goes into talking about representation for women, a subject she's probably more comfortable talking about, and lists off all the accomplishments that women have made in WWE recently, including main eventing WrestleMania and having two matches now in Saudi Arabia. But this does seem to be an issue that Stephanie is sincere about.
5: And you need to have it at every level. You need to have employees. You need to have on screen. You need to have your superstars. You need to make sure, you know, diversity is real and it's not just representation, but that those voices are really heard um, and, and that those voices matter. Because at the end of the day, you know, all of these different experiences that people have that's what's going to bring us together to create the best possible society and the best possible company.
2: It's notable, too, that we did just hire, as we've been talking about here at WrestleNomics, the, as far as I know, the first ever female chief financial officer, uh, Christina Salin, the former Etsy CFO, who officially starts in August for WWE. Poji followed up with asking questions about whether, you know, in the light of things like Mrs. Butterworth, uh, certain brands being reevaluated, the Washington Redskins being reevaluated, whether WWE had uh, reassessed any of its characters. Just, just go- going through this interview again, uh, listening to it a second time, she, she uh, the interviewer, Janine Pogi, she really brought it with these follow-up questions here
4: about like characters and and images of characters whether some are stereotypical or not is that something you guys are are rethinking at this point
5: Uh, we're looking at everything you know we're we're from a storyline perspective from a character perspective from an employee perspective you know we really are because you know again like I just said representation matters and we want to make sure also that our talents voices are heard You know so when we're crafting characters in wwe it's not just hey you're going to be you know this particular character and that's it and you have no say in the matter and here's your script and that's it you know our superstars have the opportunity to give their feedback like you know they they help us create the character they um help with with what they're saying um and we have had instances where we've had talents say listen this doesn't feel good to me. African-American talents say this doesn't feel good to me. And this was actually pre um, George Floyd, but that those conversations happen. And I think they're important. Yeah. Um, and you can't be afraid to have those conversations. You have to be willing to listen. You have to be you know, willing to admit that you just might not know something. You might not understand each other. And the only way we're ever gonna learn from each other is if we truly listen and value each other's feedback.
2: From there, Poji throws through a question from Facebook for a questioner who asks, you know, what kinds of things are, are W doing to essentially communicate with talent and staff in light of the positive COVID tests so that, for example, everyone knows who was with who and so forth? And this is not brought up, but reportedly there had been some frustration among talent who felt like they were not being communicated with by the company, and they didn't know who was positive or whether they should quarantine or whether they were at risk or to what degree they were at risk?
5: Well, there's you know, some HIPAA restrictions there in terms of people's medical information, but we have a whole system that is provided by our medical team in terms of, you know, if you do test positive, what's the contact tracing? And you know, there's various levels of that contact tracing. So we notify other performers or employees or crew in accordance with the, the guidelines from our medical team.
2: So there's more there in that interview, including talk about Vince McMahon memes, which ones are Stephanie's favorite. Anybody can listen to this interview. It's on YouTube. I'll put the link in the podcast description. So while still being fair, I think this is the toughest interview I think I've ever seen uh, Stephanie sit for in other news. Wade Keller has a story out today on pwtorch.com. where he has some ratings, some viewership information, For Impact Wrestling on Access TV. We have never seen any actual reports. We've seen Dave Meltzer report some things about Access TV, uh, and New Japan's performance on Access TV. Not any single instances, but I think one time he gave a general impression of what kind of viewership the program was doing. I think maybe around 200,000 viewers when New Japan was on Access TV in 2015, uh, just for that year. Of course, New Japan was on Access TV through what? 2018. But Impact on Axis TV, and Axis TV is now owned by Anthem, which also owns Impact. This week, they drew 163,000 viewers, which Wade says is up from 156 and 135 the week before that. The average since March 24th has been 145,000. So this past week was especially good, apparently, for Impact following their Slammiversary pay-per-view. He's got more detail in here, including some detail about the key demo performance. Impact doing a .05 in the demo this past week. For comparison, NXT did over six hundred thousand viewers. Well, uh, this this week and last week had been doing well over seven hundred thousand viewers in weeks before that. Uh, AEW Dynamite doing over eight hundred thousand viewers this week, which is pretty high for them. Uh, that was their highest in a number of months. Uh, doing, But AEW Dynamite, weeks before that, doing well over 700,000. So Impact, in terms of total viewership, doing a fraction of what NXT and Dynamite are. Nonetheless, a stronger-than-usual performance this past Tuesday for Impact, which Wade reports ranked at about 103rd for the night on cable in the key demo. Remember, next week is WWE's Q2 report on Thursday... With a conference call at 5 p.m., documents dropping probably in about the hour before that. I will be covering it all live as it happens on Thursday. On Twitter, at Brandon Thurston. I hope to be putting those notes, too, on WrestleNomics.com. As I will, as always, do my best to give you the full breakdown and explanation of what's happening and put it in context using a number of visual aids. Everything from charts that I create in Excel myself. To charts that WB publishes, to relevant screenshots from WB's SEC filings and press releases. An exciting time as always this Thursday, the quarterly WrestleMics holiday, also known as the quarterly WB Earnings Report. If you want really the, the best breakdown that you're going to get uh, independently and in public from somebody who's been doing this for a number of years now and spends probably more time with W SEC filings than Maybe anyone in the world outside of Stanford. Again, you can follow all that on my Twitter account at Brandon Thurston and on Russellnomics.com on Thursday afternoon. More after this as we talk about how to read viewership numbers in this time of declining ratings, viewership doom, and television panic. The best, quickest way to improved W programming, plus which Disney franchise is most like John Cena. All of this will be related and interesting, I promise, after this.
6: The story of NBC and Universal involves two visionary entrepreneurs, David Sarnoff, the founder of NBC, and Carl Lemley, who created Universal. A third visionary entrepreneur, Ralph Roberts, set in motion an American success story called Comcast. All three companies were founded by men of humble origins who were propelled by their visions of a new industry. Ralph Roberts transformed a single cable franchise into one of the nation's leading communications and media companies, giving customers more control, more choices, more of what they want, when they want it. Today, NBC Universal is a leader in the creation and distribution of entertainment news and sports programming for a global audience. Extraordinarily talented people telling compelling stories has always been and still is the essence of NBC Universal. They're coming. It's a remarkable journey, one that spans nearly a century. A legacy that belongs to each and every one of us. And the best years are yet to come. Three extraordinary visionaries Three tremendous success stories. Now, one great company.
2: Thanks to Lester Holt of NBC for that explanation of who were the founders of the three companies, NBC, Universal, and Comcast, that are all owned under the parent company, Comcast. And NBC Universal, of course, is the parent company of the USA Network, broadcaster in the United States, of WWE Raw and WWE NXT. So let's set the stage first with some recent viewership notes. Raw this past Monday on the USA Network did its second lowest viewership and its second lowest performance in the key demo on record. By that, I mean on record with showbuzzdaily.com. That record goes back to September 2014. So that is probably the second lowest viewing audience ever. For WWE Raw, it's history going back to 1993. But you may say, well, that's just the nature of TV in 2020. Linear TV viewership is down overall, and we'll get into that. SmackDown last week, Friday, viewed by less than 2 million viewers for the third consecutive week, doing a key demo of four and a five over the course of its two hours. The lowest that SmackDown has done yet in the key demo since moving to Fox. Maybe we'll have a new record set when the viewership for tonight's show as I record this is reported on Saturday afternoon. On Wednesday night, though, AEW Dynamite had its best performance since May 27th, a point three two in the key demo of 18-49. to As you know, that's the demo that matters. Certainly to AEW and TNT it does. Total viewership was also ahead of NXT, 145,000 viewers on average. That's the highest total audience since way back on March 25th, just the second week of these COVID shows. NXT, while it had been gaining momentum in recent weeks earlier in the month, did a .17 in the demo and a 615,000 average for viewership. AEW and NXT combined, which of course run head-to-head from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, those two programs combined exceeded Raw's performance. In the key demo on Monday. In fact, AEW and NXT combined exceeded Raw's performance in five different demos that are reported by Showbuzz Daily. That's the first time that that's happened that I know of since November. So it's only happened a few times in this new era of wrestling TV. And I predict we are on a trajectory where soon enough, sometime in the near future, Wednesday will become the leading night for pro wrestling in the United States, when you combine AEW and NXT together. Even AEW alone on Wednesday, while it did not exceed RAW in any demo uh, versus RAW over the course of its three hours, if you take the lowest performing hour of RAW, AEW Dynamite did exceed the lowest performing hour of RAW in the adults 18 to 34, and the female demographic 12 to 34, two demos. That admittedly narrow criteria has never happened before. There's only one other occasion where on the same week, AEW exceeded uh, the lowest hour of Raw in in any given demo, and that was on the debut week for AEW, where it did its biggest audience still to date. Some other facts. AEW this week broke one million viewers for a few minutes towards the end of hour one while airing a tag match between the Young Bucks and the Butcher and the Blade. That's the first time any minute for AEW Dynamite has broken 1 million viewers since May 27th. In the quarter hours this week, AEW exceeded NXT in every quarter in both total audience and the key demo. That for the second consecutive week. In fact, AEW Dynamite beats NXT in almost every single quarter hour over the entire history of this competition. However, NXT does sometimes lead in total audience but not in the last two weeks, in any quarter. And watch out, big sports is back. Major League Baseball had its opening day, finally here, in late July. On Thursday night, three slots of opening day baseball on ESPN, including one slot that was a rain delay for 60 minutes, led for cable on the night in the key demo by a wide margin. Four million viewers watched the New York Yankees and the Washington Nationals making it the largest audience ever for an opening night game and the most watched regular season Major League Baseball game since 2011, according to ESPN. The NBA comes back soon, so does the NHL. Next week, Friday, July 31st, SmackDown will go head-to-head with two overlapping NBA games on ESPN. Monday, August 3rd, Raw will go head-to-head with two NBA games overlapping as well. Then two days later, Wednesday, August 3rd, AW and NXT will go head to head with NBA as well. Wrestling viewership will likely be negatively affected by the first major televised sporting events since the middle of March. So I've been hearing a lot of WWE viewership doom talk, speculation about what the potential consequences will be for the declining viewership and the viewership that is likely to continue to decline as sports return. Sports probably going to be not just head, you know, going against. Raw, SmackDown, NXT, AEW, uh, head-to-head uh, on cable with NBA games on ESPN, for example. But there's going to be baseball games. I don't know of any nationally televised baseball games going head-to-head with uh, wrestling just yet. There will be regional sports networks airing baseball. My understanding is every night, NHL might be mixed in there as well. WWE just put on a pay-per-view that many people didn't like. W's content has been harshly criticized, and I would say increasingly so, over the last five years. Definitely before that as well, but I would say in the last five years, things have gotten increasingly bad. Increasingly poorly received. On a purely economic point of view, W has badly needed to create new stars to generate interest, and they have had very little success in that area. And I think this is leading a lot of people to search for some sort of consequence some sort of punishment for WWE for putting on all this bad content. But I don't think it's going to go quite like some people might imagine it going. And I think there's a good bit of misunderstanding about wrestling's place in the current TV industry. WWE has never been worse in terms of not just star development, uh, not just in terms of the TV quality that they put on, but just in the the sheer, sheer volume of talent who are having their skills And marketability wasted as WB has a growing roster, the biggest roster as far as I know it's ever had. Over 300 wrestlers signed a contract as of the end of 2019. And there's no reason to think that this will change while Vince McMahon is the CEO and chairman of WB,
0: while he has
2: Class B shares and full controlling interest of WB. And there's no indication that he will ever step away and retire. Or become something like the chairman emeritus. There's no indication that he will ever step away from the head of a creative position. And you don't need to just take it from me. You can listen to John Moxley say essentially the same thing when he appeared on Chris Jericho's podcast last year.
3: You know, one thing I mean I, that I want to do is because, like, if I have something to prove, it's that I want to prove that your creative process, the WWE's creative process sucks it does not work it's absolutely terrible and I I said I've said that to Vince I've said that to Hunter I've said that to Michael hey I I think that whatever I can't even tell you how their system works it's some kind of system of meetings that take place in Stanford and there's a home team there's writers and producers and uh, production meetings and nobody knows what's approved and what's not and like the bureaucratic red tape you have to go through to get anything approved yeah and, and it's just it's crazy it doesn't work it's killing the company I think you know like and I think Vince is the problem and not so much Vince but Vince and whatever the uh, structure that he built around himself probably starting in like I'd imagine like 2002 after the sale of WCW right? and he started building this infrastructure around himself this team of writers and whatever and producers and however he does it and this is how WWE is and this is what the product is the product sucks great talent amazing talent None of this is their fault, you know? you know? So I'm hoping if I had a goal with AEW, it's that we could prove that Vince's way sucks. I mean, this is not what I'm going to focus on because it's not about competing with WWE. I don't think that's any of our... Yeah,
0: it's an alternative. It's
3: any of our mission. Yeah. We're just going to be over here doing our best, putting on our best product. And if that if a byproduct of that is it pushes WWE to reevaluate their creative process and it makes Vince not that he's gonna step aside, we all know he's gonna die in the chair, but maybe if maybe he'll listen to somebody else's ideas. Maybe he'll be open and do it in a different way. You know, maybe he won't micromanage everything so much. I think you that's the, the biggest problem. The microman the last I've never been micromanaged more the, than I was in the last four months mm. once I turned heel.
2: And what I want people to recognize in that quote there from John Moxley is not just that he's saying that WWE's creative process sucks and Vince McMahon is largely responsible for it, but I want you to focus on the comment where he says, we all know he's going to die in the chair, which points to the widely held belief that Vince McMahon is never going to voluntarily step aside of his role as head of creative. All that said, however, the speculation that forces in the TV industry are going to punish WWE for its declining viewership, which it is declining, though that is wishful thinking that there's going to be any sort of immediate response from the TV industry. And this is another instance which I can empathize with of what I call economic justice. Fans willing some sort of consequence for a wrestling company that is putting on what they perceive to be bad content. But the WWE business story, especially in this era, isn't one with any kind of strong moral or artistic or even economic consequences. The transition of a company like WB from being a largely live event business to becoming now a media business. In a media environment where so much entertainment can be consumed on demand has changed things and caused the value of live content that must be consumed in the moment to have its value explode. And I I say all this not to encourage people to accept the bad product because there's nothing that bothers me more and feels sort of more disrespectful To wrestling fans than when people assert some version of you know, just sit back and enjoy, or if you don't like it, just stop watching. Particularly when, in W's case, it is so influential to every kind of worker, wrestler, office worker, commentator, and so on. And it is so influential to just what the public perceives about what pro wrestling is, about what somebody who walks in the room on you when you're watching wrestling and sees another display of Vince McMahon's signature septuagenarian, juvenile, amoral comedy on the screen, and with that sample figures, well, that's what pro wrestling is, when we know that at its best, it is a great deal more. And it would be nice if by far the most influential force within this medium called pro wrestling was putting on content that fans could be a little more proud of. So I'm not saying that people should accept the bad product, but I only mean to say that change will not come from the direction that it's being willed from. Even as the viewership of Raw and SmackDown will likely decline further as major sports return, I highly doubt that TV executives are going to do anything that compels WWE to have any kind of meaningful creative change, or that punishes the company in any way economically or otherwise. And in fact, change may be more possible in the admittedly unlikely scenario that we'll talk about later, in the event that WB was acquired by a major media company. But so why won't, why don't I think that the current declining trends in WWE's TV viewership, the likely future declining trends of WWE's viewership, why don't I think that that's going to have a significant economic effect for WWE, After talking with some people who have worked in the TV industry in relevant positions, the positions that are relevant to this subject, the reports uh, that were around last year that Fox was expecting 3.3 million viewers on a weekly basis for SmackDown seem very questionable to me. So again, for context, SmackDown on Fox right now, three weeks running, maybe four by the time you hear this is doing under 2 million viewers. Nonetheless, it's still leading in the demo on Friday in most weeks. The notion that Fox is going to try to get out of its deal with WB or that they're going to move WB off of the main Fox broadcast channel and onto FS1 is very unlikely. Fox is not being moved to FS1. Not in the near future. Probably not within the lifetime. That's going to run through September 2024. Consider the alternatives if you're Fox and if you're going to get SmackDown in one way or another off of the Fox broadcast network, whether that's to move it to FS1 or or otherwise. If you take SmackDown off of Friday night on Fox, you have to put replacement programming in the 8 to 10 time slots. The sports business website Sportico detailed that two one-hour drama series for Fox for them to insert two drama series on Friday night, it would cost more than twice as much as the cost of SmackDown. SmackDown's costing Fox just under $2 per episode on average. Two one-hour dramas would cost Fox $5 million, according to Sportico. Not only would replacement content be more expensive by a wide margin, two replacement scripted series would only provide about 22 weeks of first-run content for a year. Whereas, and I think we talked about this last week too, in the case of SmackDown, pandemic or not, they run 52 or 51 weeks a year. So that's SmackDown. Let's talk a little bit about Raw. Even as Raw's viewership has fallen in half since 2015, both in the total audience and the key demo. And it's fallen harder than patterns of TV overall. And I think that might tell us about W's popularity. I think that does suggest that audiences generally are less interested In WWE content, and along with a lot of other consumer metrics that I've studied, including ticket sales, merchandise sales, and network subscriptions, that seems to be the case. If WWE was a wrestling company in the 80s or the 90s, or at any time prior, they might be in huge trouble financially. But this is the strange wrestling business in the year of 2020. Even when Raw does a .45 in the demo and does a million and a half viewers, which is roughly what it's done recently... Even at that level, Raw still doubles almost anything else on the USA Network. Even at that level, Raw is by a wide margin the USA Network's leading show. And not just that, Raw, even at that level, still outranks almost every cable show on Monday in the key demo, which you can find for yourself on showbuzzdaily.com in their tables in their reports for the top cable shows for each Monday. And likewise for SmackDown, even if SmackDown does a point four five in the demo and about... Uh, 1.8 million viewers. Yet if you compare SmackDown to its predecessors in the same time slot on Fox in the year prior, SmackDown here from January to June in 2020 had higher viewership with audiences under the age of 50 than those 2019 Fox programs had. Here in an environment where linear TV viewership generally year over year is declining. So not only would replacing SmackDown be more expensive for Fox and would give them less content for that more expensive price. But that theoretical replacement content would probably deliver less valuable viewership to advertisers. If that's the case, why would Fox move this program to FS1? The upcoming competition from the return of major sports games on nationally televised channels like ESPN will probably cost Raw and SmackDown a significant portion of its viewership, probably especially in those early games. And we will see record low numbers for W shows again and again. I'm sure record lows will be set many times before the end of this year, but it's unlikely that that competition is going to provide the kind of viewership catastrophe that would be needed to cause movement from Fox or from USA Network's parent, NBC Universal. WB's flagship viewership is declining, but it's still not low enough. And I don't know that it will be in the foreseeable future. And if you want to know how low is low enough to matter in this case, I think we should be watching, um, when it comes to wrestling viewership, we should be focusing on the rankings. That is, the rankings of WWE or AEWs, for that matter, their viewership relative to other programming on TV on the same night and relative to other programming on the same network. And when those rankings start to be significantly lower than they are now, that's when i think networks will start to be concerned and until that point the speculation about wwe being in big trouble because of its viewership is wishful thinking it is an understandable hope that wwe will face a consequence for putting on bad wrestling shows so what are the trends of these rankings you know in the past and in the present you know if if that's the thing maybe we should focus on more then what's the current context? What's the threshold at which networks will actually start to worry about WWE's viewership performance? For WWE Raw, if you adjust it for the three slots, because Raw is weird in that it's, and it's not like SmackDown for most of its history in this way, that Raw, since it's a three-hour program, it appears in the showbiz Daily Tables, which means this is probably how it gets reported in Nielsen, it gets reported essentially as three separate programs. And so, if you average the ranking of these three programs, and then what I choose to do is subtract that average by one, because if you don't, you end up with the highest possible ranking being two, because the average of uh, uh, the the highest possible performance for WRAW on a given night would be ranking number one, two, and three. And of course, the average of one, two, and three is two. So, to account for that, I just subtract one from the average. So, anyway, under that methodology, Raw on cable on Monday usually ranks between number two and number three. And in Q4, it's between number four and number five. I'm guessing that's because of football, but I haven't looked into it deeply. So when Raw's hours start to consistently fall short of the top five in the demo, maybe that's about the time that the USA network starts to be concerned. When SmackDown's ranking in the demo stops being number one or number two on Friday, maybe that's when Fox starts to not be comfortable. Or, and this part is important and not much talked about, when NBCU or Fox, for whatever reason, are unable to use W to drive affiliate fees, then yes, the networks would likely have a problem. And I'll explain more what that means. But those days aren't in sight yet. And maybe that day will eventually come, but I think what's more likely is that the value of the biggest TV audiences will continue to grow, which is what they've been doing for the last five, ten years or so, or at least as long as I've been trying to understand the wrestling and TV industry. And even as the largest audiences, like WWE's audience, gets smaller on linear TV, those big audiences that are remaining, I think, will become more valuable as networks become increasingly dependent on those leading programs. And linear TV increasingly settles into being a medium that specializes in live, long-form viewing, like that of sports viewership. the one reply you may raise against this is, hey, look, this isn't unprecedented, this, this notion that a wrestling brand could fall from favor with TV networks and could coincidentally see its TV viewership decline and could be negatively affected financially because of it. There is precedent for such a situation. And I don't have to go all the way back to 2001 WCW to point to something like that. And that that did just come to mind. That would work. But what I was thinking of was the more recent descent of total nonstop action. The former number two global wrestling brand, now known as Impact Wrestling, that had its flagship program called Impact Wrestling, fall from Spike, now known as the Paramount Network. But fall from Spike to Destination America to Pop TV to Anthem's Pursuit channel and now residing on Access. And the viewership of Impact descended with the approach of Impact losing its deal with Spike. But I would suggest that the, the decline in viewership was at least as much of a factor. And I'm, I'm sure a real Impact Wrestling slash TNA. Expert like Gary Kidney could fill in far more detail, but I would suggest that it the the viewership trends had at at least as much to do with Impact being moved off of Spike as did TNA's relationship with Spike. And I, I, the most memorable story that comes to mind, which is not the prime factor, but the most memorable story that comes to mind is Spike executives telling. TNA President Dixie Carter, that they didn't want Vince Russo to be involved with the shows anymore, yet he was secretly involved with the shows. And writer Vince Russo accidentally sent an email intended for, I think it's Mike Tanay, accidentally sends it to PW Insider reporter Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson reports it, and thereby Spike finds out through that public report that Vince Russo is in fact secretly working for TNA. My understanding is just one story, among many other stories, although that story happened late in the relationship, but one story among many that uh, damaged the relationship between the wrestling company and its TV network. Uh, For a timeline there, that happened uh, in late 2014. The end of 2014 is when TNA stops airing on Spike and begins moving around year by year to various networks, taking with it a fraction of the viewership. In the case of WCW, uh, infamously, it's the decision of Jamie Kellner, the then-CEO of Turner Broadcasting System, who made the executive decision to cancel WCW programming from TNT and TBS in 2001. And what I have to imagine would be a, a very different media environment. Maybe a good question to ask uh, Eric Bischoff in one of the, the many interviews that he seems to do is whether he thinks and maybe he has... Maybe someone's asked uh, this question. Let me know if you, if you know. I mean, somebody, somebody should ask him if he thinks that if, in the current you know, TV and media environment, if he thinks that he could have more easily found a TV partner and saved WCW in time before, uh, I, don't, I don't know the details without looking it up, before uh, circumstances dictated that you know, there was nothing left to do with the assets but to sell to WWE. But anyway, with that example in mind, it seems more likely that not viewership would be the sole issue to damage WCW's WCW WWE's uh, standing with networks and value of its TV programs. But that may be viewership in addition to you know the make of the relationship between WB and its TV partners. If somehow that were to be damaged, maybe then that's how WB could face actual meaningful consequences, but there's no uh, reporting or information that I'm aware of to suggest that that's incoming or happening, that there's any problems between wB and USA or WV and Fox. Clearly, though, viewership, we mentioned this earlier, when we we're talking about the India, or the India, the I- Italy deal with WV, and, and also in the case with uh, UK, in the UK with uh, Sky, where apparently viewership is a bigger deal in those markets. And I wonder if That's a matter of where international TV networks get their revenue from. And I I wonder if it has something to do with what I'm just, I I don't know, but I'm just guessing that uh, the phenomenon of cable and satellite subscriptions is a a more popular thing here in the United States than it is in many international markets, which means there's probably a lot more, again, I'm just guessing, which maybe means that there's a lot more subscription-driven revenue ultimately from cable and satellite subscribers, so that TV networks don't have to rely as much on advertising revenue, which I I think we'll continue to touch on here. But for now, at least in the U.S., enough people are watching WWE shows, and to be realistic, I only expect the programming as time goes on, and as Vince McMahon continues to be in control of creative, I only expect the program to grow more stale. I expect there to be no... Serious elevation of stars who make a difference. I expect the TV shows to get gradually even worse over the remainder of Vince's working days. And for now, viewership isn't on our trajectory, although it is on a serious decline and somewhat predictable decline you know, year over year. The placement of W programming within a hierarchy compared to other programs that it airs against and other programs on the same network. W Programming continues to be very much uh, a leader. And as long as that's the case, and as long as the bundle stays together and networks remain largely profitable, and cable and satellite companies, or, or even some other alternative kind of distributor, as long as those companies continue to remain largely profitable, then I don't expect WB to lose any of its enormous and growing TV value. And I think there's a an AEW point in all of this too, in that if you focus on the ranking for AEW, to get an idea of a a metric for that, on Wednesday nights on cable, AEW's ranked number five in the demo for the last two weeks, over the last, just to grab an arbitrary handful here, over the last 10 weeks, AEW's average rank in the key demo is 10. So on average, it is the 10th most-watched cable show on Wednesday among adults 18 to 49. But as I I try to learn more about the, the TV industry and what wrestling programming's role will be in it, I think the next big value opportunity for AEW is in its next round of U.S. TV rights negotiations, which, according to that report from Dave Meltzer, is through 2023 with an option for 2024. And remember, part of that deal, which was made just before the pandemic became a, a big issue uh, in the United States anyway, is that AEW is supposed to produce an additional hour of content for Warner Media, But when, whenever that deal is renewed, whether it's in 2023 or 2024, TNT may find that they're able to build in what are called covenants that are promised to carriers like cable and satellite companies. TNT may be able to build in covenants as part of a total portfolio of content that drives the Affiliate fees or carriage fees that networks like TNT get from cable distributors like Comcast's brand uh, Xfinity or Warner Media's own brand Time Warner, which is the cable system we have in my area, or satellite companies like Dish or Druck TV. But the, the frenzy of conversation about the 18 to 49 demographic, the only demo that matters, the only number that matters purportedly. That demo is about ad revenue, and I, I surely believe that Warner Media and AEW are sincere in their belief that the eighteen to forty nine demo is the most important viewer demo. It's more of a concern than PD Plus, which advertisers don't buy against, and they do buy against eighteen to forty nine and probably other demos. But all the concern about that demo is about ad revenue, and AEW, by the way, gets a share of the ad revenue uh, for its program. It shares it with Warner Media. But in the total picture, the TV industry ad revenue only makes up about 20% of a network's revenue. And 80% of that comes from carriage fees. Again, the fees that a network like TNT gets from cable and satellite operators that you, the customer, may be a subscriber to. Or if you're a cord never like me, you never have been. But I am actually a subscriber now to Sling, which is what I understand is called a virtual MVPD. But anyway, ultimately, that uh, those carriage fees are derived from the con- the customer subscription fees, and networks like TNT or maybe it's more likely that Warner Media, as a whole, sells TNT, TBS, and its other networks, CNN probably in there, probably sells the entire portfolio of networks and its related content to cable and satellite providers, and certain certain specific content and certain kinds of content may be defined to be worth certain amounts of money within that agreement. So in the case of NBC Universal and USA Network, RAW is a huge component for USA Network. RAW is the USA Network's leading program. RAW is probably driving a large portion of the carriage fees that the USA Network is getting from cable and satellite providers. I'm not sure about SmackDown because SmackDown is relatively new to Fox. AEW is just as new to TNT and is far more unproven than Raw or SmackDown. Similar could be said about NXT, which is new and unproven on the USA Network. But AEW and NXT, for that matter, probably contribute towards satisfying certain promises that networks may be making about certain numbers of hours of live or first-run or sports content that the networks may be promising the cable and Satellite providers. But by 2023, or maybe 2024, when AEW and WarnerMedia renegotiate, AEW could be a specific covenant. AEW could be specified to provide specific value to cable and satellite providers. And I think that's the root of the value opportunity for TNT and thereby to AEW. And I think that's especially so, and again, to some extent this, this applies to NXT as well maybe, but but I think this is especially so for AEW if by 2023 or 2024, AEW's brand value is more comparable to that of WWE, since we do seem to be on this trajectory where WWE, at least main roster content, is getting less popular, and AEW seems to be doing okay at least as an alternative brand. It's kind of hard to say here in this pandemic era, but we've got a a runway in front of us of about three years. And if all that's the case, then I think that's where AEW's TV rights value, which is currently about $45 million per year, could grow by multiples. So now that I've destroyed, or at least discouraged your hope, that WWE would get what it deserves, or if you're one of those WWE Universe members who just loves the product right now, loves Cinematic matches, the comedy, the sports entertainment. Well, then I guess I've given you all sorts of, uh, complicated reasons why certain, uh, foreboding expectations are undue. But if you're not one of those, and, and if my, uh, pro wrestling favorability survey results, which I have not yet published, but I am working on, I will give you a sneak preview. If, if those Survey results are any indication of who my listeners are and what they think of W main roster product. Then most of you are not very approving of the quality of the product right now. So if, if you need, if your hopes have been dashed now and you need some alternative hope about how, how will W ever get any better? Are we just waiting out the lifetime of Vince McMahon? Is there any scenario under which new stars could emerge? Good TV shows could be put on on a regular basis and big matches between compelling personalities could be built up in a smart and dramatic way towards peak events that are deeply satisfying and exciting events. Is there any way that could happen? I will present now what I see as the only really plausible scenario within the lifetime of Vince McMahon for that to be the case. And the scenario that if you are a disenfranchised wrestling fan, we'd like to see WWE get better, then this is what you should be rooting for. You should be rooting for WWE to sell. And if I'm a WWE TV partner, I would like to buy WWE if I could, especially if I'm Comcast, the parent company of NBC Universal and the USA Network. For disenfranchised fans, that's the only way that the TV gets better and the company explores its unrealized economic potential outside of waiting for whatever secession plan there is after Vince McMahon. And I think for partners and investors, that is for brands that do business with WWE, and for investors who want their shares to be more valuable, I do believe a sale means a more secure future. Obviously, there are other well-suited buyers besides Comcast. Those, especially our Fox and Disney. Obviously, Amazon has plenty of money. Uh, stock analyst Laura Martin of Needham seemed to be speculating uh, earlier this year that Amazon might be interested in buying WWE. Someone even suggested to me that Apple would be a a, a good buyer. Can you imagine Apple uh, redesigning the TV and pay-per-view sets with giant, blank, white, elegant, glowing entrance sets? But to be clear... There is no information that I'm aware of to think that any of this is being seriously discussed. I'm not talking around something. I'm only arguing that this is a strategy that favors the interests of fans, investors, and business partners. So why would an acquisition of WB be good for everybody involved? Maybe even Vincent McMahon himself. So... WB right now is a very profitable company with valuable live content. And it's quite obvious to me that the chairman and CEO and head of creative and controlling shareholder Vince McMahon is the key impediment to WB's unrealized potential. In other words, it's profitable regardless of anything. If nothing changes, it will be increasingly profitable for the duration of its U.S. TV deals through 2024, but it still has unrealized potential. It is still not nearly as popular as I think it could be. and I think the value of its consumer products business, its live event business, and its media business could be much more valuable under different creative leadership. But more concerning to investors and partners is that Vince's creative direction arguably causes risk for the company, the value of the company, and its content. And how so? Since 2001, Vince McMahon has become increasingly unable to cultivate star power, or in other words, increasingly unable to make new, valuable intellectual property. WWE's most valuable intellectual property is aging and is increasingly absent from new live content. Note that the personalities that appear in a lot of W marketing materials are not performers who appear regularly on W programs. Just the latest example of that is this. World of Tanks game that has a added W tie-in, and IGN tweeted out this promotional graphic of two tanks battling and towering above these tanks are four images. That of Sergeant Slaughter, Becky Lynch, Steve Austin, and The Undertaker. Three of those people are over the age fifty-five. Since th- two thousand sixteen, if you count up their matches, Steve Austin has had zero W matches. Sergeant Slaughter has had Zero WWE matches, The Undertaker has had 12, and Becky Lynch has had 559. Or if you count up their matches just since this past WrestleMania, they are all at zero. In fact, if you comb through the Google Web Search Index for WWE personalities, as of course I have, and you sort that out by year, and you create top 10 and top 25 lists for each year, the median age of the people on those lists has grown gradually over time. We've got this going back to 2004 to the present. 2004, the median age of the top 10 is 30. Here in 2020, the median age of the top 10 is 43, 13 years older. The median age change of the top 25 is less dramatic. In 2004, it's 33. In 2020, it's 38. the, The rise of John Cena in 2005 was the last time that WWE made really valuable IP. You know, to a lesser extent, Batista emerged around the same time. But especially John Cena, he turned out to be a really valuable star for WWE. A full-timer for the next 10 years after that, in 2005. But not since then has WWE really cultivated a star of comparable status in the last 15 years. This would be sort of like if Disney's last big hit was Cars. You know, a a franchise that's polarizing among some superfans... Highly merchandised, spun off, and had its last big iteration around 2017. You know, if you follow WWE's content over the last two decades, I don't know how you can have hope that there will be another Cena or Hulk Hogan or Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin. Or even you know, maybe in a, in a secondary tier. Uh, a, a, even a Bret Hart or a Shawn Michaels or a Macho Man Randy Savage or The Undertaker or or triple H-level star. I don't know how you can follow the company over the last couple decades, watch the content, and believe that a star of that kind of stature could be created under the watch of this Vince McMahon. Vince's peculiar taste is projected onto a flawed perception of the consumer market, and there may well be sufficient TV rights fees value to bear that discrepancy for as long as he continues to work. But in the process, as time has gone on and as time will go on, WB is needlessly damaging its relationship with a significant part of its consumer base. With its mercurial star development and at best anachronistic creative vision and by producing unsatisfying shows that are played out in an inauthentic and servile Orwellian world. A significant population of lapsed and disenfranchised fans have been left behind and will continue to be left behind. That population is going to continue to grow as time goes on, as I suspect the, the product gets gradually worse. WB's creative state has in, in recent years even frustrated some talent enough to walk away from big money offers. John Moxley, who we heard from a moment ago, among them, as well as Brody Lee as well as FTR. WWE's reputation causes still others to be averse to working for WWE in the first place. Reportedly, some if not all of the current wrestlers who are AEW Executive Vice Presidents were offered and did not accept WWE contracts before AEW was launched. And in that, Vince McMahon, who has controlled creative with an increasingly tightening grip since 1982, has created some of the conditions that were necessary for the AEW opportunity. And this causes immediate expenses and distant possible risks for his company. First of all, we already know that the cost of talent has increased a great deal due to the competition for that talent with AEW. Perhaps further out, should AEW's brand strength grow or should WWE's brand strength weaken, AEW is a risk to compete with WWE in nearly every business-to-business and direct-to-consumer area. Those risks are greater the longer that Vince McMahon stays in creative control. His Class B shares allow him presently to control a slight minority of WB shares, but over 70% of the voting power. Vince, known for his work ethic, will never work in WB and not control creative. Sure, he delegates to a team of writers and creates new executive positions, like he did last year where he created executive director positions of Raw and SmackDown, which would supposedly, in his words, allow him to get out of the weeds of creative work. Yet since those positions were created last year around this time, little has changed in the creative vision. And he already fired Eric Bischoff and Paul Heyman, the two people who were put in those positions in the first place, merged the positions where now Bruce Pritchard, an aide plucked out of the early 90s, handles the executive director position for Raw and SmackDown. Nonetheless, it's clear Vince still sets the creative vision and maintains all approving authority for everything on screen, and he will never back away from doing so. It's hard even to imagine him selling the company, mainly because it's hard to imagine him ever relinquishing that control. And that's largely why I say that the scenario that I'm about to lay out is unlikely, even if it would be effective for protecting and enhancing WWE's value. So for Comcast, one of its networks, USA Network, is very dependent on Raw, as opposed to Fox or Disney, the other most likely candidates. You know, Fox and Disney have a whole slew of more popular content. You know, they've each got a collection of other sports content, for example. You know they're airing NFL games. You know Disney's ESPN has got a ton of sports content, so that's why I think Comcast would be the best fit because it owns the USA Network, and so much of the USA Network's value is floated by W content. But not only that, I think W would suit Comcast in other ways, which we'll get into. But buying W would allow Comcast and NBC Universal to own rather than lease Raw. Right now, just for Raw, NBCU is paying an average of $265 million per year through 2024 for Raw. And acquiring WWE would also allow Comcast to own SmackDown, which it let go over to Fox. Plus, Comcast would control of WWE's valuable live pay-per-view events and all the other new in-ring content and decades' worth of archival library content that currently lives on the WWE Network any of which might fit well onto NBCU's new streaming service, Peacock, which needs to set itself apart in a competitive subscription streaming video market. If Comcast could buy WE for, let's say, several billion dollars, and by the way, W's market capital as of today is about three and a half billion dollars, Comcast has far more cash than that on its balance sheet, got about $8.5 billion in cash, but if Comcast could acquire WB for, let's say, more than $4 billion, but a lot less than $10 billion, the content that it gets as a result of acquiring WB probably pays for itself in under a decade, especially if live sports value continues growing, which, as I've said earlier, seems to me likely. NBCU could, for example, put Raw on the USA Network where it is, SmackDown and NXT on any of its networks, maybe USA, maybe USA becomes the the wrestling channel, the WWE channel, maybe there are other possible homes, and WWE's monthly pay-per-view events, which are currently probably under-monetized, and which probably could be sold to a major streaming player at a price tag of around $100 million per year, that could go on Peacock, possibly with those pay-per-views being offered monthly for a single purchase again. That might be the best way to monetize them. And with the W network content being a monthly add-on service within Peacock. And from a more overarching perspective, if Comcast were able to get control of W away from Vince, they can install a new CEO. But I know what you're thinking. How, how would Vince McMahon ever be convinced to agree to walk away from WWE? The company that he founded the company that he works on with every waking hour, which is most of them because infamously he supposedly never sleeps, how do you get Vince McMahon away from this company that he founded and that he works tirelessly at? Vince McMahon needs to be sold not just on billions of dollars in cash in exchange for his company, but he needs to be sold on a story. If you're going to buy Vince's company from him, if it's even possible, you need to give Vince a grand exit story. You need to give him the graduation from the wrestling business that he's always longed for, and that has eluded him. For Vince, the high's priority isn't money, but ego, personal story. The story of the entrepreneur who outgrew his dad's wrestling business and thrust it into the mainstream. As he once wrote in a letter published with the New York Times, he's always wanted his company to be, quote, more Walt Disney than P.T. Barnum. More family room than smoke-filled room. More Main Street than Back Street. That kind of sentiment is why he's struggled so compulsively, but fruitlessly, to rebrand pro wrestling as sports entertainment. It's why he's repeatedly made ambitious forays into other business projects, and sometimes at great cost, to himself and to his company. But none of those projects, including professional bodybuilding, nutritional supplements, restaurants, professional football, twice, or feature films, were particularly successful. In fact, most of them burnt out in short order. And in the wake of Vince's numerous business projects, where he's seemingly tried to convince himself that he is not in the wrestling business, he has left behind an amazing trail Of audio clips.
3: I really wasn't that concerned with Ted when he bought Crockett Promotions. Ted called me up, he said, hey Vince, I want to let you know I'm in the wrestling business. And I said, Okay, that means we're in different businesses. What do you mean by that? Well, you're in the wrestling business, as he called it, and I'm in the entertainment business. And that's two completely different philosophies. You always like to listen to your crowd. Are mm-hmm. you giving the crowd what they want? Because I just got finished watching three hours of live sports entertainment right. slash pro wrestling. Where did I, I come that's from? That's sports entertainment. That's not where you come from. You know, pro wrestling is, you know, what my dad did. You know, come on. How I've did seen, pro I mean, wrestling segue into sports entertainment? I've seen, you. seen, I've seen entertainment. you play the guitar, I've heard you sing. That it, was I, under the sports entertainment <laughs> umbrella. Of course. When I got in a ring, I wrestled. Here he comes, Jerry Stridum. Wow, take a look at that. Hop Hat and Kane talk about stepping out for a night on the town. Oh my goodness. Look at that mass. Holy cow. Ooh, look at this triation. Pumped up Give it to,
6: him. to Dr. Fred Hanfield. He's going to tell you what integrated conditioning programs are really all about. Take it good, Doc.
3: For months, you've been seeing IcoPro all around the WWF. <laughs> but just what is IcoPro? IcoPro is the result of years of scientific research. This research was not only conducted in laboratories, but also by studying athletes in the gym, on the football field, in the boxing ring, both on the road and off the road for that matter. ICAPRO is a complete sports supplement line that can help you develop muscle mass and definition, as well as increase your energy and endurance.
1: Of a new theme restaurant where you may have to wrestle someone to get your food. The WWF is ready to smack down some meals, and we were there as their top wrestlers, like The Rock, were welcomed as the new kids on the eating block. Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. The good guys arrived to cheers.
3: Rocky, Rocky. They're chanting The Rock's name.
1: The bad guys arrived to booze. They think I'm a bad guy, but they don't
3: know. Look at these eyes. Would I be a bad guy?
1: But either way, wrestling fans went wild for their favorite and not so favorite WWF superstars at the opening of a new restaurant bar in New York's Times Square.
6: We're right in the middle of it all, and that's really where we belong.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, the founder of the XFL, Vince McMahon.
6: To fans all over North America, The fans here in Las Vegas. On behalf of the players, we simply say thank you. Thank you for the privilege of competing before you here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the access. The new XFL will kick off in 2020, and quite frankly, we're going to give the game of football back to fans.
2: If you're Comcast, you might be able to help Vince with this, not just by making him a multi-billionaire, but by giving him the final chapter in the entrepreneurial story of his life that he longs for. If you're Comcast, you own a number of TV channels. And if you're Vince, you do already own one company that is separate from WB, the LLC that Vince started when he relaunched the XFL called Alpha Entertainment. Maybe you could convince Vince that he should restart any number of sports or entertainment projects. Maybe try the XFL for a third time. And NBC Universal will use its distribution means to help Vince make these projects successful. In the event of a sale, Vince would have billions of dollars in cash at his disposal. And maybe something along those lines is how he could be sold the story needed to finally get him out and beyond the wrestling business. The acquirer of WWE, though, of course, would be faced with the problem of who to put in charge of the wrestling company. He would face all the hazards that WCW faced As the former Jim Crockett Promotions Was acquired by Turner Where essentially you had people who didn't understand The wrestling business in charge of it Maybe an acquired WWE would face similar problems But could that really produce A wrestling product That's that much worse Than the product that WWE is producing now At the very least I'm not sure As former co-host of WrestleNomics Mookie once suggested uh, On this program Maybe television producer Shonda Rhimes, who has been behind TV shows like Grey's Anatomy, would be a good candidate for chief executive officer of a company like WWE. While experienced wrestling people who have a a lifetime of work in the business and a family history in it, like Paul Levesque and Stephanie McMahon, maybe even Shane could continue to guide the company with the wrestling industry experience needed to protect and improve WWE's value. That's all for this week. I think this is coming in at the longest WrestleNomics monologue for me yet. And now that you've been listening this long, I will let you in on a behind-the-scenes secret. These episodes that usually, with the exception of this one, come in at about an hour really take me something like six hours to record. Because there's all sorts of pausing and researching and things of that nature that go into this. But thanks for listening. I'm excited for the WQ2 report on Thursday. I expect to be reporting the following day on Friday and you never know where I might turn up between then and now. But you can follow all my wrestling business thoughts on WrestleNomics.com and on Twitter at WrestleNomics and at Brandon Thurston. And I'm Brandon Thurston. I'll talk to you next time.